Welcome to the Hillside Community Church Podcast. Wherever you're at in your faith, we hope this episode encourages you. If you enjoy the listen, let your friends know, and we'll catch you next time. Good morning. I'm glad you're here today. Uh, we are in Ephesians chapter 2, starting in the second half of the chapter. Um, and uh, there's a prominent image of a dividing wall in this text. It's a dividing wall that represents hostility between two groups of people, the Jews and the Gentiles. And it'll be really easy to to relate to these people today because when you look around, uh, we are divided in so many different ways. And even though it's not a popular topic, I I, I, I don't want to overlook the fact that one of the most divisive days of the year is coming to a head in just two days. There are people in here today who are uh, reasonable, intelligent, um, God-fearing Christian men and women who disagree on these issues, and yet it is so divisive. So to ease us into this, I want to start by reading an excerpt from a satire site I follow called the Babylon Bee, and uh, it reads like a news article. It says this. A study released by Pew Research Center Thursday morning revealed the new fastest-growing religion in the country, politics. Unlike many religions that only meet once or twice a week, adherents to the religion of politics worship every day, doing their devotionals in front of Fox News, CNN, or their carefully cultivated Twitter feeds. There's a major sectarian dispute among politics followers as to whether the one true God is a donkey or an elephant, But otherwise, their methods of practicing their faith are remarkably similar. According to researchers, worshipers of politics are even more zealous and passionate than members of more traditional religions, being more likely to annoy friends and family and blast each other on Facebook over which political god is better. Religious people sometimes go door to door to spread their beliefs, while the political faithful will bother you on Facebook all day long. Followers of this rapidly growing religion are reportedly preparing to celebrate its high holy day, midterm elections. The festival includes a selection of new high priests to enact the sacred will of the people. Now, this is obviously fake. It's meant to be somewhat humorous. But satire carries some kernels of truth that allow you to see things in a slightly different perspective. And, uh, you know, if you're a parent, it may be hard to admit this, but there is something beautiful in sarcasm. It's there, I promise. But this is a really lighthearted treatment of a very serious issue. Because we're two days away from what I would consider the most divisive day of the year in America. And listen, it's not divisive because we disagree. It's divisive because we have allowed those disagreements and differences to define us. We're divided even in this room. We yell and call each other names over political issues. Uh, There's still racial injustice happening on a daily basis. And while we may not take part in it, we're too often complicit in it. There's division along denominational lines in Christianity. The the, the Catholics and the Baptists and the Lutherans and and the Methodists. Uh, there's, there's division in gender roles and sexuality and socioeconomic class structures between the rich and the poor. 
And hear me when I say, again, we are not divided because we hold different opinions or because we have different skin tones or uh, come from different class structures. We're divided in here today because in many ways we have let those things define us before Christ. And it makes us put our faith in the system. It makes us operate out of fear because we can't let it fail. We can't concede any points in an argument or we'll lose ground. And so we defend immorality or we excuse immorality in all of our candidates. We lump people who don't agree with us into manageable categories and call them names and devalue them as people. So with all of these dividing walls between us, I didn't have to convince you they're there. With all these dividing walls between us, we're going to open up Ephesians 2 and figure out whatever this dividing wall was that, that divided these two people. Um, hopefully we'll see that while, while everybody's calling for peace and unity, there's only one lasting solution. So before we jump into the text, can I pray for us? Father, I thank you for this day. Um, God, break down walls today by your spirit. Uh, do what only you can do, Lord. Soften our hearts to hear your truth and let your truth be the only thing I'm allowed to speak today. Uh, unite us, Lord God, in your name. Amen. Now, since we're jumping into the second half of Ephesians, let me give you some spoiler alerts for the, uh, the first half of the chapter. Um, you know what to do when you hear a spoiler alert? Earmuffs, if you don't want to hear it, here it is, the spoiler alert. Everybody dies, including the main character. Uh, everybody dies. So the, the first half of the chapter, uh, chapter 2 in Ephesians, is all about how we were dead in our sins, how we were far from God, and how it took Christ to bring us near. And so there's this individual reconciliation between me and God, him taking away our sins, which was the dividing wall between me and God, and uh, verses 8 and 9 are probably the most familiar uh, in, in this section. It's, you know, for by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It's a gift from God, not by works, so no one can boast. Uh, this first half of chapter 2 is all about this individual reconciliation between me and God. The second half of chapter 2 then moves into uh, this, this new life corporately. We go from new life individually to new life corporately, the tearing down the walls that divide us. So Paul starts in here uh, by telling us to remember. This is an extremely important word here because this is the only imperative, the only command in the first three chapters of Ephesians. The last three chapters have uh, a lot of very uh, just good ideas on, and, and, and commands on how we can live together and what we can do to, uh, to create this unity. Uh, but the first three chapters, this is the one imperative. Remember. Remember what? These first three chapters are setting up who we are in Christ. What is our identity? So he tells us to remember uh, because everything done in this first section is what has been done for us. God is the agent of change in this passage. So what are you called to remember? Who you were, your old identity, the fact that you were dead in sin and far from God. 
So we see these identity markers throughout this passage. We see, therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision that is performed on the body by human hands. On the body here is the exact same Greek phrase. It's just uh, translated a little different in this. This is showing you, you got Gentiles in the flesh, who you are by nature of your birth, where your identity is, and you've got these Jews in the flesh. These Jews who, uh, this is who they are by nature of their birth. And so what Paul does here is he sets up the dichotomy and he says, you uh, Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, the circumcision here is, is uh, circumcision was a sign of the covenant that was supposed to set them apart from the people. And when, they, when the Jews are calling the Gentiles uncircumcision here, it's actually a derogatory term that they would use toward them who are uncircumcised. So it's a derogatory term, and Paul even is bringing this out a little bit, when, you know, the ridiculousness of this when, when, he, uh, when he, you know, himself a Jew says, the so-called circumcision, right? So-called. That's performed on the body by human hands. Now, uh, on the body, this in the flesh piece is actually in the middle of one word. This performed by human hands is one word in the Greek. And it's performed by human hands or made by human hands. The meaning is, is clear, right? It's, it's either, you know, it's, it's something that is made by hands that doesn't occur naturally. So if you're carving a staff, it's going to be made by human hands. If you're building a dam, it's made by human hands. The meaning's clear. But listen, the, the connotation that this word has is really interesting. Because in the Old Testament, the Greek version of the Old Testament, this word is used exclusively to refer to idols. And it has an entirely negative connotation. So Paul is bringing out this idea here that, that what these, uh, these, these Jews uh, called this so-called circumcision, uh, they have this self-righteous and idolatrous superiority. They think, they think they're hot stuff. Or like my mom used to say, you think you're hot snot. She said, you think you're hot snot, you're really cold boogers on a silver platter. It's disgusting, I know. You can blame my upbringing. But these Jews think they're hot snot. Paul himself, a Jew, is saying this, okay? Uh, this connotation, he's bringing out this self-righteous, idolatrous superiority that they're holding over this other group of people. Uh, God, what was the purpose of circumcision? God set them apart to show that he, he made them a distinct kind of people. All the way back in, in um, Genesis 12, when he's making this covenant with Abraham, he makes this covenant that says, so that all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. These Jews weren't set aside just to be special and Jewish. They were meant to be a light to the Gentiles. And so what, what God intended to be a conduit of blessing to the nations, they were holding over other people's heads. They allowed it to puff them up and, and make them superior to these other people. We don't do that, do we? I 
Ask yourself, where do you find your identity? What do you hold over others to maintain your sense of superiority? Where do you think your hot snot? How about intelligence? We think I've thought through these issues so well that no other thinking person can disagree with me on this. And if you do, you're an idiot. Here's a good litmus test to see if that's you. Right now, in the climate that we're in right now, do you drive down the street in Texas and you see either a Beto sign or a Ted Cruz sign and you say, at least they let us know where the idiots live. How about your work ethic? These relate to me too. We pride ourselves in being the guy or the girl who can get things done. Take it all on. If you get less done than me, you're a bum. How about our nationality or race or political party? What names do you call people to devalue them? Who don't look or think or act like you do? This is probably the first step in devaluing somebody is calling these names. Because if I can lump, if I can lump people into a general category, then I can deal with them a lot easier. We get this tribal mentality, and anybody who is not a part of my tribe is either too dumb, too lazy, too ugly, too whatever. I had this college professor uh, at a junior college up in Corinth, and I won't tell you what side she leaned on, because that's not the, that's not the point of this. Uh, she was a government teacher, and uh, we had class one day, and uh, this, this young college student on the, on the front row asked a question. Very simple, innocent question. Had to do with what we were talking about. It wasn't malicious. It wasn't, uh, had no evil intent to it at all. She was genuinely asking a question. And it was even a good question. You know what the college professor did? She starts laughing hysterically at this girl. At her. So much so that she buries her head in her hands while she's laughing and falls to her knees three feet in front of this girl and is laughing hysterically for probably a good solid minute. It was probably one of the most uncomfortable minutes of my life. Everybody in the class is looking around like, what is happening right now? Nobody else in the room was laughing. But this professor had such a tribal mentality that anybody who disagrees with her or even brings up an opposing view is such an idiot and needs to be ridiculed. Now listen, I was like that around that same time. You didn't want to be around me. I was so steeped in the issues and so so driving just... Every conversation was full of anger and angst and fear that whatever, uh, if, if my candidate didn't get in, this was the end of the world as I know it. And so I had to pull back for a time. I had to become very apolitical for a time. Because I wasn't a guy you wanted to be around. I think these conversations are worth having. It's part of being a good steward of what, we're, what we've been given here, but not like this. So what part are you playing in widening the divide and val- devaluing others? Where do you find your primary identity? 
So what does Paul want these Gentiles to remember about their old identity? He gives them five, five big markers of their life before Christ. He says, you were at that time without the Messiah, alienated from the citizenship of Israel. Everything Israel had, all the rights Israel had, you were outside of that. Strangers to the covenants of promise. You were on the outs, having no hope without God in the world. It was hopeless and bleak. But now, look, in Christ Jesus, we talked about the, uh, the Gentiles in the flesh, and we talked about the Jews in the flesh. That's where you found your identity. Now, in Christ Jesus, you who used to be far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ, by his sacrifice, by what he did in your place in order to bring you near. Your identity is no longer in the the old markers the world told you to have. Now your identity is wrapped up completely in Jesus, the one who brought you to life. It's his work that brought you near. God is the agent in this passage, this entire passage. He's the one doing the work, and we're called to remember. Remembering where you came from fights against this superiority that we hold over others, this entitlement. It humbles you to realize that you are only where you are today because of the grace of God. We are brought near in Christ. For he is our peace. This is going to be a big theme in a minute. We'll come back to it. He is our peace. The one who made both groups into one and who destroyed the middle wall of partition. This is the dividing wall between these people. The hostility. When he nullified, here it is again, in his flesh, the law of commandments and decrees. He did this to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. And to reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by which the hostility has been killed. Now, What is this dividing wall? What is separating these two groups of people? Let me give you a window into how deep this enmity was. Because there was a physical wall that separated them in the temple. This four and a half foot wall that they had between them. And the Gentiles were not allowed to come into the, uh, to this Jewish part of the temple. In fact, there were, uh, there were archaeological inscriptions found from this wall that say it, Basically, enter at your own risk because you might die if you go in here. The Jews might kill you if you go into this part. That's how deep the segregation was here. And the Jews were doing this because they had just come out of, if you know anything about Jewish history, this Maccabean era where they had been so persecuted. And so they had this renewed resolve that I, we are going to be distinct from these people. So there was a literal wall that separated the Jews and the Gentiles. Is that the wall that was talking about? I think Paul absolutely has this thing in mind because he's got temple imagery in the end of this passage. Uh, But is it the thing that was destroyed? The wall was still standing almost 10 years after Paul wrote this letter. So it wasn't the thing that was destroyed, even though it represented it in a very physical way. The Mosaic law, 
is another, we've seen it already, the source of hostility. Not because the law is bad, God gave it to them, but because they idolized it. They used it to hold it over people's heads. So other rabbis have talked about how this wall or this, the law was a fence around Jerusalem, around the Jews, I should say. And it, it created this distinction from the rest of the world. So is the law itself the wall? We see that it plays a part. It was, it was nullified, set aside in legal terms in order to destroy the wall. But Jesus says in, in uh, Matthew 5, I didn't come to abolish the law or the prophets. I came to fulfill them. So the wall was a source of enemy, but it, it was not the thing that was destroyed. So the third, the, the third view, the one I lean more towards is this just general cultural enmity. The wall represents this, this metaphorical wall between us. Like if I were to come to you and say, man, I just feel like there's a wall between us. Like I just can't get through to you right now. It's this metaphorical wall of, of cultural enmity between these two groups that was sourced in their idolization of the law and physically manifested in this actual wall that's in mind. So the cultural enmity was destroyed. The gravity of, of this situation is really hard to convey because this is huge, but it doesn't stop at the wall getting torn down. There's more. It doesn't stop at the wall being torn down. It says he is our peace. There's three distinct markers of connecting Jesus as, as our peace in this chapter. It says he is our peace. It says that he, he makes peace. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. He proclaims peace. So he is our peace. He makes peace. And he proclaims peace. Paul is trying to give us a comprehensive picture of what this peace is. And it's rooted in the Hebrew idea of shalom. Now, if you were to ask a Jewish rabbi what shalom means, you would probably see their eyes light up because they love this word. But even a lot of Jewish rabbis will, will admit to you that, that they've studied this word their whole life and have felt like they're barely scratching the surface of the depth of this word. Shalom, if we were to really oversimplify it, it means peace. It means the way things ought to be. That's the picture of shalom. It's, it's, it's got this destructive element, like the tearing down of the wall, but it's got this constructive element as well, this building up together, this uniting feeling, and that's what, that's what differentiates it from the counterfeit peace that the world offers. People are always calling for unity and inclusion, and sometimes we see glimpses of it. Uh, you've heard by now of the, uh, the shooter that opened fire in, in a synagogue in Pittsburgh. An extreme and horrendous um, manifestation of this hate that goes to an extreme. I read an article this, this week where this this man, when, when, uh, 
they, were, they had arrested him and they're taking him to the hospital. You know, who, you know who took care of him at the hospital? Jewish nurses and doctors. He, when he found out, he's spewing anti-Semitic hate at these people while they're trying to help him. And they know what he just did. He know, they know that he just killed a lot of Jews. And they're trying to help him. Uh, you see, uh, you know, I saw this, this video this week of, of this Islamic man who, he's a father and, and he, uh, he was able to forgive his, uh, the man who killed his son in a hate crime. And you see this and you go, there's a glimmer of hope in there. There's a glimmer of hope the, you know, the world uh, calls for peace. You see glimpses of it, but the kind of peace or shalom that Jesus brings is more than a ceasefire. It's more than a truce. It's more than an absence of conflict. More than just destroying the walls between us. So there was a, there was a um, missionary named Don Richardson who uh, went to these remote tribes in Indonesia and these tribes were always warring against each other. They were always at each other's throats, and these were cannibal tribes. And he, I mean, he doesn't just go over there himself as a missionary. His wife goes with him and their small child into this cannibal tribe. And he's trying to convey the gospel to these people. And when he does, uh, he gets to the part where Judas betrays. And they start whistling. They start cheering. They think Judas is the hero of the story. And he doesn't understand what's going on. And it turns out that these tribes value treachery and deceit. It's a virtue in their tribes. They call it fattening with friendship. They, they bragged about getting close to people. And, and they would brag about the look in their eyes when they knew they were about to die and be eaten. And he's trying to bring the gospel to these people. And he realizes this and he goes, how in the world can I convey what this is? And so these, these, these tribes are always at war. But they were, there were three tribes that camped right around where he was living. And so because they were in such close proximity to each other, they were at war even more than normal. And Richardson says, if you guys don't stop, I'm leaving. You have to make peace or I'm out of here. And so the next day... They, they have this ritual where they, they bring uh, the three tribes together, the leaders from the tribes, and there's a child from each tribe brought in, and they are, um, they are exchanged, and they become adopted into these other tribes. They, they exchange a child that they call the peace child. And this child represents peace. The, the, the tribes are at peace as long as this child is living in the other tribe. So they call it the peace child. And he realizes, ah, I've got an in. I know how to do this now. And so he goes and he says, Jesus is the peace child. Jesus is the one. God sent his own peace child to you to be your peace. And then all of a sudden, Judas was not the hero of the story anymore because even this, this culture that valued treachery realized, uh, even this culture, they the worst thing that you could do in this culture was to hurt a peace child. So they started to get it. They understood. And listen, if you were to go to these tribes, 
these cannibal warring tribes, if you were to go to them and you saw this ritual of a peace child and you said, look, there is peace. You can have peace. They didn't need Christ in the middle of all of this. You look at the, the Islamic man who, who, who was able to forgive. You look at, at all of these situations and you say, I see glimmers of, of peace in all of this. But true peace, true shalom builds up and unites us into one man, not just a ceasefire, and reconciles us together to God. There's a destructive element in the tearing down of the walls and the hostility, but there is a constructive element that builds up. And this kind of peace can only be recognized, realized in Jesus Christ. He proclaims this peace so that through him, Who's him? Jesus, one we've been talking about. Through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. This is a picture of the Trinity. Jesus was the peace child that was brought down, not just for a ceasefire, not just to stop the hostility. Jesus was brought in to bring us in to a new humanity, to bring us in as a new people, united together, not just a ceasefire, a new humanity, a new being. So there's a major point I want you to see here. Uh, Since peace is only recognized in Christ... Unless we are reconciled to God in Christ, we cannot be truly reconciled to our neighbor. Unless we are reconciled to God in Christ, we cannot be truly reconciled to our neighbor. There simply is not another way. Every other glimmer of hope apart from Christ may be a shadow of the peace we're longing for, but it's not the fullness of peace. The the inverse of this is also true, though. We cannot properly relate to God unless we properly relate to each other. These go hand in hand. They're they're tied together. We're not saved and reconciled to God just for this individual relationship apart from the body of Christ. We don't get to say, I want you, but I don't want your church. Ephesians 2 does not allow us to do that. It's... The church is wrapped up completely in him. He's created in himself one new man. Ephesians 2 doesn't allow you to separate a relationship with Christ from a relationship with his church. They're intrinsically tied together. It's why we are called the body of Christ. So the two big points there, unless we are reconciled to God in Christ, we cannot be reconciled to our neighbor. And we cannot properly relate to God unless we properly relate to each other. So what do you do with this? You see the problem. I didn't have to convince you of the problem. It's all around us. You see the division. You see the hate. Hopefully, you see this picture, this vision of this fullness of peace. The shalom that Christ has come to bring us into. And I could give you a lot of very moral ways to live, to break down walls, to to try and unite each other. That's not the application from this text. 
The only thing this passage calls us to do is to remember. It's the only thing this passage calls us to do. And the word is a progressive present. We're called to continually remember. We don't just become good at this one day and all of a sudden uh, we don't struggle with it. We have to be continually reminded again and again. Remember what? Your identity, your citizenship. Where do you put your trust? So many of us in here are, are putting our faith in either a red wave or a blue wave. When God says in Amos, let justice roll down like waters. And righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Let justice roll tide. My people are called to be a kind of people, not simply to progress a political movement. We have to see a whole new identity, a whole new citizenship. Our investment in this world is as an ambassador to it, not a citizen of it. 2 Corinthians 5 says, we are given a ministry of reconciliation to the world. We're ambassadors. And it says that God is making his plea through us. How is that looking right now? How is God making his plea through us right now? I think... I think we should be active in politics. I do think that that is part of being a good steward of what we have here. I think we should be active in politics and racial reconciliation, voting, advocating for justice. But listen, when you lose, because somebody in here is losing in two days, somebody in here will lose. When you lose, are you able to collect yourself and say, God is in control, I operated in love, and God made his plea of reconciliation through me. If you can say those three things, then even if you lose, you will have succeeded in bringing the kingdom of God, a little bit of peace to the world. The Greek word for, for church, ecclesia, has this sense of being called out. We're called out from the world. What we've seen in Go Local, that does not mean we are called out from involvement in the world. We're to bring Jesus to others in everyday, ordinary lives. We're not called out of involvement with the world. We're called out of the world's identity. You are a Christian first, American second. You're a Christian first, white, black, Asian, Latino second. You're a Christian first, Republican, Democrat, Independent, second. You're a Christian first, Catholic, Baptist, Lutheran, non-denominational, second. There are no adjectival markers that are allowed to define you before Christ. But that doesn't mean you lose your distinction. There's a beautiful picture in Revelation 7, 9. It says, after these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count, from every nation and all tribes and all peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. The rich character of God is represented in our diversity. 
So I will say it again, what we said in the beginning. We are not divided because we disagree. We are divided because we've let those disagreements define us before Christ. So here's the call today. It's not just to be nicer and less divisive, though you need to do that. <laughs> it's rooted in something deeper. How do we, how do we operate? What, what is the source of this? Remember your identity in Christ and engage in the things that continually remind you. Here's three quick ones. Daily time with God. Daily time with God, studying his word, praying, meditating on him. These are routine elements of our day that reorient our hearts in a different direction for a different kingdom, a different citizenship. It's a daily humbling. Daily time with God, meeting together as a church. When we come together, we are encouraging one another and, 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 and reminding each other what Christ has accomplished. When we take the Lord's Supper next week, we are reminding each other that life comes from outside of us, from Jesus Christ, that true peace is impossible apart from him. Three, writing your testimony. Some of you are doing this in your uh, life groups right now, or you've done it, or you're about to in this Go Local curriculum. Uh, writing your testimony is a beautiful way to be able to say how far I've come. Look at how far I've come. I've got nothing to hold over anybody's head because everything that I have is from Christ. And you get to see the ways he continually brings you nearer. So daily time with God, meeting together as a church, writing your testimony. These are just examples of ways that we continually remember, that we're continually reminded. But some of you today, some of you this week, you need to seek peace. You may have a broken relationship and you need to go to that person. You need to humble yourself. Romans 12 says, so long as it depends on you. And to the ones who haven't decided to follow Jesus yet, let me make a passionate plea that the, the only place that this kind of peace can be found is in Jesus Christ. It's not the counterfeit peace of the world, the, the band-aids, the ceasefires, the truces, the absence of conflict. It's more than that. In fact, it will bring division between you and the world because it will, it will require giving up the world's identity. And finding your true identity as a child of God, that's true peace, true shalom. Because it's the way things were meant to be he made us to be reconciled together to Christ and brought into intimate relationship with the God who creatively knit you together with all your quirks. So lay down your old identity, your old self, and run into this community that you were created to belong in. Let me pray for us. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you uh, sent your peace child, Jesus Christ,
to make reconciliation, to not just break down the walls, to not just destroy the conflict, but to unite us together, to make us one new humanity together. God, I ask for those in here today who just need to be reminded. I pray that your spirit would move and stir in their hearts this week as they're having conversations with people. And I pray for those that that don't know you yet. God, I pray that they would see that this peace is only found in you. True peace. Bless us this week, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, thanks for watching today's message. We hope it encourages you wherever you're at in your faith. If you enjoyed it, let your friends know. We'll catch you next time.